last time on Footnotes. What I took away from Black Lives Matter was we cannot be assuming that there's the same kind of safety happening for different people in our streets. And so we want to talk about street safety. We're going to have to talk about that. When urban designers try to create these spaces for all, they still end up alienating the other faction of that all, like people who are marginalized, people who are Black, people who might not feel safe being in their, that for all space because they'll be policed. You look at safety and public safety, it's very clear that usually what we mean by that is, you know, uh, some group is made safe at the expense of another group. I am afraid going out without a mask, get myself sick, someone else might like, you know, try to call someone on me. Me being a black person wearing a mask outside, already seen as a threat. We've seen this on the news with um, the two black men who were removed from a Walmart for wearing masks and they were asked to leave. So I started working with um, the concept of human infrastructure or social infrastructure because I thought, well, if everybody's talking about infrastructure, maybe if I explain culture in those terms, (laughs) I can like um, make sense, you know, within this uh, conversation. So I think that, yeah, making changes is ultimately, you know, gonna require shifting how we spend our public dollars on transportation away from funding planning firms and toward funding community-based efforts. In the first two episodes, we looked at some of the ways in which focusing solely on the role of the built environment in transportation planning can perpetuate racial inequities, and particularly the role of policing. For the rest of the series, we're going to focus on solutions. I was so inspired by Dr. Lugo's idea of social infrastructure, and I wanted to figure out how it could be applied to walkability specifically. So I turned my attention away from planners and researchers and engineers to try and find people who were creating walkability solutions through culture, community, and social networks. I'm sure you remember Garnett Cadigan from episode one. He's a writer with a particular focus on walking and cities. And he makes the case that the practice of walking is in and of itself a form of social infrastructure. Walking allows you to move through a place such a pace and at so close a distance that you're able to observe the habits, the sensibility, the pace, the conversations, even the volume of them, in you know, all the the, the the language you know, of a place. Each place has its language, you know, you know and each place has even its own you know, vernacular. And walking puts you in close contact you know, with that vernacular in unlike any other way of moving through that space. For Garnett, walking is how you become a part of a place. By repeated walks through your neighborhood, you become a part of that neighborhood, and it becomes a part of you. It allows you to take things in, to absorb things. It allows you to be absorbed and taken in by others, and allows this in a collective, in a sense of attachment. It allows a collective recognition. What it does is 
gives you the chance to see the city as a place of encounter. And it's only by encounter that we in, you know, develop and you know, inculcate a deeper sense you know, of citizenship, you know, of civic attachment, of civic virtue, um, you know, of civic value. And if nothing else, it just allows us to see and be seen, um, to inscribe ourselves on a place and allow itself to be inscribed upon us. And so that's the ways in which walking can you know, build a place by building us. The process of building a city is much more than erecting buildings and paving roads. Each resident has a role to play in building a network of relationships that tie the city together. And what actually gives people a sense of civic virtue or civic attachment is not so much the 15 friends you have that you will meet every weekend. It's the person who you have that loose relationship with. You see her every Thursday morning walking her dog. You see him you know, every weekend you know, with his son um, you know, you know, on the playground that he continually pass you know, a few blocks from your home. In many ways, that's what makes you fight for a neighborhood. That's what makes you fight for a city. Garnett's focus on cities as a topic of his writing means that he tends to find himself surrounded by urban planners, and he questions the ways in which we often approach walkability. We've gotten so accustomed to the aggregate, the aggregate in terms of measure, like big data. So, you know, rather than walking through a place and getting a sense of the rhythm of the place and interacting with people there, you know, we run all these numbers. And so we've started to make different plans with hardly visiting the place. And I've seen that over and over again, talking to lots of planners. For Garnett, walking is an act of humility and curiosity, of allowing a place to show itself to you, rather than coming in with a big pile of quantitative data and thinking you have the answers. In a walking through a place, we recognize how much we really don't know. You're like, oh, I know this neighborhood. I know Chinatown. And then you walk through Chinatown a bunch of times and then you recognize, actually, I know, in a, in a layer of Chinatown, you know, there's a whole bunch to be stripped off, one after the, after, after the other. He also questions the intense focus on walkability purely as a way to get from A to B. He thinks of it more as a way of existing in the urban environment. So the even concept of walking as transit is for us not to recognize how much we're still allowing a car-centric sensibility to, to shape us. We're almost seen as in the humans are cars without the wheels. Um, rather than recognition that no, that part of walking is in a recognition and acknowledgement and also kind of coexistence. Garnett is also concerned by what he sees as a consistent trend of designing walkable places that are centered solely around commerce. Many newly constructed walkable main streets and downtown districts are essentially outdoor malls often with the same big box stores copy and pasted over and over again. You're walking in the same stores with the same activities in a, same, in a, in a built-in environment, um, you know, wanting almost like the same kind of goals and aspirations that feel more connected to a sense of what it means to be a global, you know, a national place rather than in a deeper localized. And so it can be easy in a, in a, pass through and not really have a sense of place, that you're passing through a space, by which I mean it hasn't made its mark on your imagination. It hasn't, you know, grasped, you know, your emotions. There's not a sense of 
emotional attachment that would make you fight for that place uh the kind of thing that would make you have in a sense of civic attachment in a civic virtue uh that makes you a citizen of that place what garnet is really most interested in is what walking can teach us about how to create a richer public realm an important part of being in a city um and not only a city you know but being anywhere is the act of recognition recognition is so crucial to how we see ourselves in terms of our in a in a civic attachment um in a civic responsibilities um citizenship um you know what we owe each other what we owe um the place we're at what we owe the country you know we're in and that comes from recognition so it's important that part of walking a huge part of walking i think ought to be not about we are going but about we are here If your downtown district or walkable main street is built entirely around commerce, whether it's massive international corporations or even tiny mom and pop shops, you are sending the message that in order to belong there, you should be spending money. Kenneth Bailey has similar concerns about the transactional and commerce-driven nature of walkable places. Most of all, you need to go out of your house I'll enter anything into sort of the major parts of public space in Boston, or if you're going to a park or something, would be to buy something. There's no reason to be in the sort of concrete parts of of Boston without money, because you just feel silly. Um, and that shouldn't be the case. You should be able to go to places and have things to do that should be free as well. And not worry about You know, people are going to question your right to be there, or the cops are going to harass you. Kenneth is one of the co-founders of the Design Studio for Social Intervention, often referred to as DS4SI. DS4SI brings together artists, designers, activists, academics, and community members to imagine new ways of bringing about social change. Kenneth has been working in the Boston area for almost 30 years, but he originally grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, although the city spatially is organized such that you can walk, it's not culturally respected to walk in um, public space. The um, to walk in public spaces to put the body in danger, as far as um, we were concerned at home, and um, and so I was definitely always transgressing sort of our cultural norms by. Um, being a walker at home. Every, all of my um, friends would say, look at that hippie walking around in his broken stock looking crazy because that was not how we, that, you know, to, to get around is to have a car. When Kenneth first came to Boston in the 1990s, he worked in a variety of social change organizations and later in organizational development. Over the years, he became frustrated with what he saw as an inflexibility of mind amongst nonprofits with a social justice mission. He wanted to push these organizations to approach their problem solving in a new way. I got a residency, a fellowship at MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning with Cesar McDowell in an organization called the Center for Reflective Community Practice. And it was there that I met a guy named Robert Pegler who had been at a design studio called Razorfish, 
And and it was there where a bunch of the questions I posed around imagination and social change were sort of met with his understanding of design and him telling me that a lot of the questions I were asking about um, producing more opportunities for imagination and creativity in the social justice sector were all fairly regular methodological concerns inside of the um, world of design and design research. And he said, maybe I should look at design methodologies as a way to think about the questions I was asking myself. And that's where, and I did, and, and he was right. It was there at MIT that the Design Studio for Social Intervention was incubated. Kenneth and his collaborators began pulling ideas from game theory, from anthropologists and ethnographers, from artists and activists and academics. We got the word intervention from reading the Janella Meadows in the early, early, early days, even when I was still doing organizational development work. She wrote a paper called Ways to Intervene in a System. Um, and so, and that was a, another sort of um, uh, one of those texts that was eye-opening for us starting the studio. Um, And so for us, social intervention was really about thinking about, you know, social problems as enmeshed in systems and networks. It was during these early years that DS4SI really began to hone in on their theory of bringing together individuals from different backgrounds to find new ways to solve social problems. You know, people who typically think about themselves from a lens of social justice tend to organize their thinking around um, power and politics. And um, people who tend to get trained in the um, world through the framework of art tend to think about the world through sort of color or aesthetics and symbols and rituals and choreographies. And academics tend to get to think about the world, you know, through nonlinear sort of conceptions of systems and networks. And all of these ways of understanding the world give us another clue into how the world works and how to change it. They started off by doing work predominantly with youth activists in the Boston area. And a lot of what we really got to um, do in those early days was really sort of hone our conversation and our, um, I guess, really our our case for why social intervention, what, what social interventions are, and how they go about for, um, for, for, um, asking for kinds of new forms of social change in ways that are different um, that, uh, from sort of more, I guess, rehearsed approaches to tackling social problems. One of their early projects was addressing the practice of grilling, which is when young people, often from different neighborhoods or social groups, make eye contact and assume animosity, which often leads to threats or even actual acts of violence. 
DS4SI and the youth that they worked with became curious about how intervening in that social practice could shift social relations and decrease youth violence. And that was really a, a cultural sort of project to say that if you want to change something like youth violence, you have to look at the agreements that are enough across a field of people versus just looking at who's good or who's bad, or the, the person trying to make the bad person be good, we're like, hey, it's a, we're enmeshed in a network of relations that we have to somehow surface and renegotiate and make new rules around. While their methods have evolved over the years, their mission is ultimately the same as it was 14 years ago. We're still just trying our best to get people to, to be get people who care about social justice to be open to experimentation and thinking about having having more understanding that the problems that we're trying to address are really difficult and complex and require more eyes on them than we typically get and more discussion than we typically want and more experimentation than we typically allow ourselves to do. It really is still about making a case for um, imagining and testing creative ways to solve problems. In 2011, DS4SI put out their first paper on spatial justice, a concept first articulated by geographers David Harvey and Edward Soja. Spatial justice involves recognizing that issues of justice and injustice express themselves in physical space. The idea that certain bodies have to explain themselves in space and are always already suspicious is a question of spatial injustice. Who gets to determine that somebody is guilty by virtue of being in a particular place at a particular time and needing to explain their their um, existence in public such to an extent that they can be killed? That's a question for us of spatial justice. Space is not some flat, lifeless container on a map. It is shaped by people, and people are shaped by it. When we examine the way that space is distributed, utilized, divided, and categorized, we can begin to see the ways in which justice and injustice are enacted spatially. In 2015, sociologist Elijah Anderson published his essay, The White Space in which he examines the enduring physical, spatial, and psychological repercussions of a society that never really desegregated. Overwhelmingly white neighborhoods often still hold many of the amenities and opportunities that Black people want access to. Schools, workplaces, stores, restaurants, museums, and parks. These are spaces that Black Americans often have no choice but to move through. And when they do, they are placed in emotional and physical jeopardy for entering into a space where they may be deemed not to belong. When we hear stories about Black people having the police called on them for everyday activities such as barbecuing, swimming, golfing, checking out of an Airbnb, napping in a Yale study room, or sitting in a Starbucks, that's the white space at work. There is a belief that these individuals could never possibly belong in these spaces, so their very presence is considered a violation. We should, we should be able to move through space without having our our bodies questioned 
and we should be able to go to places where we want to go without having to worry about if the decision we made to go somewhere is going to put our lives in jeopardy or is somehow going to um, bring us into some kind of harm around either our, how we present ourselves or how or our gender all those sort of things that can make one second guess the idea of walking or sort of help help sort of reinforce more sort of you know the idea of creating a car as a kind of a fortress for the body that you know that the body can't be in public because it makes the body a vulnerable site and there's like a double fold there's the marginalized body and then there's the marginalization of the act of walking DS4SI is trying to imagine new approaches to creating public spaces where people can be, thrive, express, and connect. They call this aspect of their work public making. Let's sort of bring the idea of spatial justice um, and the ideas of who has the right to be, thrive, and express, and connect um, in cities, in towns, in places, and let's figure out ways to program, program or ideals. Let's figure out ways to sort of start to experience the kinds of public we want through practice. Kenneth and his colleagues believe that the work of remaking our public culture is a challenge we can and must take on. But they also recognize the systems at play that make this work particularly difficult in the U.S. Private is always better than public in the United States. And so to get around in any way that sort of puts you in a public or makes you use something that is connected to the concept of public is always a sort of a second class um, thing versus being in something that you own because owning is everything in the United States and it's private. And, and, we, will, and we really um, sort of value heavily the idea of the private over the public. DS4SI also uses the term social infrastructure, although in a slightly different way than Dr. Lugo conceptualizes it. When we're talking about um, social infrastructures, we're trying to talk about the regular sites that would be sanctioned or organized that people could literally continue to do public making or continue to sort of enact forms of social justice. One example of a form of social infrastructure that they designed was a dance court. You know, if you want, if you want people to dance together all the time, there needs to be a space that's free, that's spatialized, so that people can enact dancing together all the time. For dance court, we were just trying to propose the idea that people should be able to regularly dance in public the way that they can play basketball in public or the ways that we can sort of play handball in public. And so... We wanted to test the spatial, like the spatialization of a kind of idea, um, and so we did a bunch of dance courts across the street from the old studio on Washington Street, um, just to in a, in a tennis court that people didn't use that much, just to try to say that this could be something else, like it doesn't have to necessarily just be a tennis court that's not used. 
DS4SI brought in DJs to play music and let people interact with the dance court as they pleased. This park was a popular spot for people to gather together and drink, but on that day, they danced together instead. The concept of spatial justice and the practice of public making tie in both the physical form of space and also the culture that plays itself out in that space and how those two forces influence one another. These are critical questions for urban planners and transportation advocates to think about. Who are you inviting into the space? And what kinds of activities and relationships are you enabling to take place? And I say enabling very intentionally because there's a big difference between just allowing something and actually providing the infrastructure that enables it to grow. All of this feels especially urgent in the midst of so many simultaneous crises in the United States. As, as soon as physically possible, we're going to have to increase our public making exponentially because people are going to have a kind of affective, residual sort of knee-jerk reaction to avoid each other, but that's going to still be with us. I, I feel like in the United States, like we're going to be we're totally fine with being a part, and, and it's gonna, we're gonna, people wanna, we wanna be a part for a really long time. <laughs> um, so, I, I, I feel like, um, it's, 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 unfortunately, COVID is helping to further exacerbate our separation, and it's turning our, it's turning our fear of each other up. Um, and so I hope that we can, we can really figure out ways to, deal with the, the fractures that we're going to have to heal post it. Our, our ideas about public life aren't finished. We still have um, lots that we can do to make it better. Garnett Cadigan and Kenneth Bailey are both working to find ways to create a truly just public realm where people of all ages, races, classes, genders, and religions can be together and interact for free. They are working to imagine a world where the strength of a city's infrastructure is determined as much by the investment in community relationships as it is by the investment in concrete, steel, and paint. At the crux of their work is the importance of recognition, belonging, agency, and ownership for all city residents. I believe these are critical factors in creating a human infrastructure approach to walkability. Spaces where people can feel comfortable walking also need to be spaces where people can feel comfortable just being. In the next episode, we're going to learn about a nonprofit that worked to build that kind of belonging and ownership amongst communities of color in Boston. to learn more about the people, places, and ideas discussed in this episode, check out the resources tab at footnotespod.com. Graphic design for Footnotes is by Micah Epstein. The music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I'd like to thank Garnett Cadigan and Kenneth Bailey for all their time. I'd also like to thank my advisors on this project, Julian Azerman and Penlow. This has been Footnotes. 
Thanks for listening.